Welcome to the second Frontline Gastroenterology podcast related to the Twitter debate with Dr. Charlie's on Tuesday the 14th of October 2014 entitled Frontline IBD, Finding the Cause of IBD, Genes, Bugs or Diet. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology SPR in London. And I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Charlie Lees, who's a consultant gastroenterologist at the Western General Hospital, Edinburgh, and an honorary senior lecturer in the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Lees has published over 50 high-impact IBD research papers, and his major research activities focus on the translational interface between basic science and direct clinical application, focusing on the genetics and the pharmacogenetics of IBD, the role of diet, nutrition, and the gut microbiota in disease and etiopathogenesis and prognosis, IBD for therapeutics, monitoring, and e-health. He's also the chief uh, investigator of the UK arm of the of the important GEM study, a $20 million cohort study investigating the underlying cause of Crohn's disease. And amongst many other responsibilities, He's a member of a number of IBD research consortia in the UK and worldwide. Dr. Lees, thank you for doing the podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate, um, in which you've included a number of excellent teaching slides, which will be available um, alongside this podcast. Um, thank you once again for, for agreeing to this podcast. Um, it was a really excellent de- uh, debate and a really important topic. From the debate and from your title, it suggests there's three major areas um, in which IBD research is focused. And I wondered whether, um, for, for our listeners, whether you could summarize very briefly where we are in relation to our understanding of the role of genetics, the, the microbiota, um, and diet and environmental factors in the development of IBD. Um, thanks, Phil, for that kind introduction. Good, good morning to you and um, hello to, to, to listeners wherever you are. Um, it's been a real privilege to take part in this um, excellent Frontline Gastroenterology Initiative. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the, the, the debate we had on, on Tuesday evening there. I've been pursuing the, the, the causes of inflammatory bowel disease over the past decade, um, during which time we've seen tremendous progress, but we're, we're still not quite there yet in terms of working out what causes these diseases. Crohn's disease, in fact, was first described by uh, Thomas Diel just over 100 years ago. Diel was a, a Scot who trained here in my city in, in Edinburgh and then went and worked at the Western Infirmary in Glasgow as a surgeon for a number of years. And he wrote an important paper in the British Medical Journal in 1913, to which at the end he says, um, I can only regret that the etiology of the condition remains in obscurity, but I trust that ere long further consideration will clear up the difficulty. Well, we're 100 years down the line from that, and we still don't really know what causes Crohn's disease or indeed ulcerative colitis. We know these conditions are common. They affect about one in 200 individuals in the Western world. The incidence has stabilized, but is still increasing, particularly of Crohn's disease in young individuals. And if we look across to developing world, particularly in the Far East, where Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis were pretty much unheard of 20 or 30 years ago, we're seeing an explosion um, in the instance of these diseases as these countries adopt a more westernized lifestyle. So why is this and what's happening? Well, what we seem to be seeing is that there is a subfraction of the population 
that are genetically predisposed to developing and exaggerating an immune response in their gut's um, immune system to the microbiota, to the billions of bacteria that inhabit the lumen of the gut. Now, what we don't yet understand is whether or not that is an abnormal and over-exaggerated response to normal gut contents, or whether or not there are abnormal gut contents or abnormal gut microbiota that are helping to trigger what's going on. But what seems to be happening is that a genetically predisposed subfraction of the population in response to certain environmental triggers, diet is probably a major factor, but there are many others that could be contributing that then um, interact with the gut microbiota and cause this exaggerated immune response. And then we see the development of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And then, unfortunately, um, for, for many, many individuals, uh, a lifetime of, of very unpleasant symptoms with bloody diarrhea, urgency, pain, weight loss, lethargy, um, requiring multiple immunosuppressant therapies that may or may not work, that may or may not have side effects, and frequently the need for major surgery, the formation of stomas, uh, for example. So what we are trying to do is to understand what causes the disease, what causes it to develop in different ways in different individuals, to understand how that then impacts on prognosis so that we can ultimately prevent people from developing the disease, hopefully move further towards a cure for the disease in certain individuals, but in the meantime, try to be in a position whereby we can affect a better outcome for those individuals that are already suffering from these diseases. Okay, well, uh, uh, thank you for that excellent summary. But um, in particular relation to the genetic side of things, as you said, there's been huge, huge advances in, uh, in relation to our understanding of the genetics of uh, inflammatory bowel disease and with the huge projects such as the GWAS projects which you've been involved in. But isn't it the case that many of these genes actually overlap, and, uh, overlap with other immune conditions and that still we don't really understand how um, some of these genes discover that actually works, um, for example, NOD2. So how do we take the information that, that we've, we've discovered in GWAS studies and um, uh, and then go on, take the next step to, to um, establish the functional relevance of these genes. And what about these other areas that uh, seem to be quite fashionable at the moment, such as transcriptomics, epigenetics, and what role do they play? Okay, Phil. Uh, good, good, good questions and a few good points in there. So we're now over a decade since we had the landmark discovery of the involvement of the NOD2 gene in Crohn's disease. That was back in 2001 and was a landmark breakthrough not just for uh, Crohn's disease itself, but for all complex diseases. And in fact, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis have led the way over the past decade, largely thanks to some of the brilliant analysts that we have working on, on, on these projects. Um, in the UK, we're very lucky to have guys like Jeff Barrett and Carl Anson at the Sanger, Luke Jostens in, in Oxford, who've really um, generated so much excellent informatics to help us try and crack these questions. Now, what the challenge is, is to try and work out what the disease genes are, and then what they mean, and then to understand what that tells us about the disease. I think one of the misconceptions um, that people have had is that we look for disease genes to try and help to predict who gets disease. 
Now, that is in itself an interesting question, but we always set out to look for disease genes to try and understand more about disease biology. And in that line, it's been phenomenally successful. So the discovery of NOD2 over a decade ago has told us that innate immunity, or rather defective innate immunity in the gut, seems to be a critical point of the pathogenesis of Crohn's disease in such that there is probably defective killing of intracellular bacteria in the lining of the gut that seems to be in part responsible for the development of Crohn's disease. Having said that, we still don't understand fully how the NOD2 mutations work. There are plenty of patients with Crohn's disease who have normal NOD2 function, and there are plenty of healthy people out there who have NOD2 mutations and will never develop Crohn's disease. As part of the international consortium, we've been looking at the, uh, the effects of genetics both in Western populations, but also now in transethnic populations. In the Far East, for example, the common NOD2 mutations that we see in the West aren't present at all, either in health or disease. So there are some very interesting lessons still to be learned. If we look more generally now, and we bring right up to the state of the art, which has been, as you say, through the GWAS experiments, the meta-analysis of a large number of GWAS experiments from across the world, and then more recently the current state of the art, which is the immunochip experiment, where we've genotyped about 200,000 mutations now in a population of 40 or 50,000 IBD patients and a huge number of healthy controls across the world, we've identified about 200 inflammatory bowel disease susceptibility genes. These appear mostly to confer susceptibility to both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, although there are a handful of genes that are specific to one or the other condition. And indeed, as you say, there is a large overlap between these IBD susceptibility genes and susceptibility genes to other immune-mediated and indeed some non-immune-mediated conditions that we see, such as diabetes mellitus, celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and some really interesting things like mycobacterial disease, such as leprosy and perhaps tuberculosis. So for Crohn's disease, one of the lessons appears to be that some of the Crohn's disease-specific susceptibility genes perhaps have evolved to confer protection so there's a survival advantage because they confer protection against developing mycobacterial disease. But in the modern environment, they are appearing to predispose to people developing Crohn's disease. So they've taught us a lot about disease biology, about innate immunity, about IL-10 signaling, IL-23 and TH17 signaling, defective barrier function in the gut in ulcerative colitis, to name just a few examples. But overall, if we look at the phenotypic variants that these genetic findings explain, they probably only explain somewhere in the region of a quarter of why someone develops disease. And in an experiment that I've led for the International Consortium in the past two years, where we've looked at the subphenotypes of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, in a population of 35,000 patients who have been fully characterized, What's fascinating is that we see only a really small contribution of the genetics to the disease location of an individual um, and very little to explain the disease behavior. So to summarize, we have seen a huge 
success in discovering susceptibility genes, about 200 IBD susceptibility genes. This has led the field in complex disease genetics thanks to our um, hugely collaborative efforts across the world and through um, excellent bioinformatics that we've had the support of. These have taught us a lot about disease biology, but they don't help us predict who gets disease, and they don't tell us very much about what type of disease people get. So that leaves the key question as to what causes the rest of disease to develop, how that interacts with the genetics, and then once disease has developed, how can we then predict what type of disease someone will get and how that will progress over time. Okay, well, thank you for that detailed explanation about the genetics. The other part of your title refers to the uh, the microbiome, which at the moment is a very topical area in, uh, of research, not just in IBD, but it appears in many disease processes. The, the big question about the microbiome that I always, when I read papers or, you know, I look at the literature is that always seems to get asked is, are the changes in the mi microbiota cause or actually affect? Um, and it always appears that it's a difficult question to answer. Uh, how do you think we can answer this question effectively? This is absolutely key. It's not just key to the microbiota, it's also key to environmental factors that may predispose to developing disease. Now, when we study genetics, you know, someone's genetics in terms of their DNA, mutations in their DNA are fixed. So we can look after the development of disease and it would be the same um, at a very basic level compared to their, their genetics if we looked before they developed disease. But when we look at the microbiota, if we look at environmental factors, that's not the case. So if you look at someone's microbiota um, in either a stool sample or perhaps better in a sample taken at, at an endoscopy, like a colonoscopy with biopsies or brushings, then if they've already got disease, is that are the changes that you see in the microbiota, and we do see changes in the microbiota in patients compared to controls, is that observed dysbiosis causing the Crohn's disease or colitis to develop, or is it an effect of the inflammation that's already developed? And just to add to the complexity of that, if someone's already on treatment, if they're already on corticosteroids or other immune suppressant treatment, that may complicate the picture further because that may also affect different changes on the, on the gut microbiota. So really what you need to do is you need to look at the microbiota in a large number of healthy individuals at a baseline level and then follow those individuals longitudinally and then see over time who develops inflammatory bowel disease, be it Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and then compare the changes in the microbiota at baseline in those cases versus the control population who don't ever develop Crohn's disease. Now that's a challenge because you need a large number of individuals to start with and a long period of follow-up to do so. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a challenge, but it, it does sound like the best way to, to try and get to the bottom of that problem. As, you, as you've also said in um, the final part of your title, um, the, the incidence of IBD is increasing, uh, especially in the Far East, and possibly because of the adoption of a Western lifestyle diet, etc. Um, 
But by what mechanisms do you see environmental factors such as uh, diet predisposing to the development of IBD? For example, we, we know that smoking increases the risk of Crohn's disease, but it reduces the risk of UC, and, and yet we still don't really understand the mechanisms by which these factors may, may work. Um, uh, do, do you have any, any thoughts on that? So, Phil, in the past couple of years, I've been very fortunate because I've taken a, a number of trips to the Far East to, to visit hospitals and researchers um, out there, gastroenterologists, scientists, microbiologists, lecture and, and teach about the causes and consequences and the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, but also had a chance to observe what's going on both in the hospitals and the clinics, but also in the population as a whole. And when you go into urban China, for example, in the big cities, it's fascinating. You can go to cities like Guangzhou and watch the, on every street corner that the mix of the old and the new, the juxtaposition between uh, old, traditional, uh, rural China um, and then the, the influence of Western, um, modern, commercial life um, uh, observing. So you will see the, 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 the peasant lady selling her wares from the farms on the same street corner that there's a young individual um, decked out in designer clothing um, selling fried foodstuffs outside of McDonald's. Um, and it, it's very uh, in, intriguing to start to think that perhaps the, the dietary changes that are happening there, perhaps other um, examples of industrialization like like pollution and, and other chemicals that are being used, something there is triggering then this explosion of inflammatory bowel disease that we see out there. Um, if we try and understand what environmental factors are actually contributing or, or causing the inflammatory bowel disease develop, there are a number of things that are postulated. Diet, which I'll come back to, uh, pills such as antibiotics, for example, um, and, and as I say, other, other chemicals and other pollutants, and perhaps more generally, if you look at the hygiene hypothesis, um, decreased exposure to, to bacteria um, and a more sterile environment dur during our upbringing. That's something I'm particularly interested in at the moment, um, and, and what I'm really interested in focusing on is the relationship between dietary habits and the impact that has on the gut microbiota. And we know from recent data that's published that what we eat has a profound effect on our gut microbiota and that our gut microbiota is actually remarkably plastic. I think our gut microbiota has evolved over time to process and, um, uh, and be amenable to a diet that is primarily based on plant-based fiber. So I think in a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we would graze largely on fruit and vegetables, a lot of tubers, a lot of underground storage organs that are a very good source of, of carbohydrate and a lot of plant-based fiber, but that from time to time, maybe once a week or once a month, there might be a hunt and a kill and a lot of animal-based protein. And you can see from the experiments that have been done recently how the gut microbiota then shift very rapidly within 48 hours of shifting from a plant-based to an animal-based diet. Um, and that enables to process the foodstuffs and allow um, all the appropriate nutrients to be absorbed and processed. So if we think about how that might be relevant in inflammatory bowel disease, what we observe in inflammatory bowel disease in the gut microbiota is reduced microbial diversity. That's similar to what we see in people taking a primarily animal-based diet, whereas a diet high in, in insoluble plant-based fiber, the microbial diversity increases. 
So perhaps dietary factors cause microbial diversity to decrease. That somehow triggers an imbalance in the microbiota itself, and then that causes um, the conditions in susceptible individuals, perhaps with another trigger that, that, that's happening somewhere environmental, that, that cause disease to develop. These are complicated issues, and I think what we need to start to do is to dissect down um, in a systematic way in large-scale research projects what's happening with the diet in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, how that influences the microbiota, try and address the cause and effect issue of that, and then also build into this mix um, the, the knowledge that we've gained in the past decade with, with gene discovery. I think by doing that in a systematic way, both in healthy people but also looking in people before they develop disease and looking in people once they've developed disease and following them forwards, then feeding that into interventional studies when we can start to look at the effect of different dietary um, interventions on the, on the gut microbiota and on disease itself, we can start to piece this, this jigsaw together in a systematic way. Oh, thank you. It's certainly very interesting um, and uh, quite nicely leading on from what you've just said. You are leading on a, a huge research project, the, the GEM project in the UK. Um, can you explain what this is and, and also where you think IBD research will, will head in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, sure, Phil. Uh, so following on from what I was just saying, this is a hugely exciting time for IBD research, not just across the world, but particularly in the UK. We've got a really uh, fantastic network of um, researchers um, across the UK that have collaborated on the genetic projects very successfully. Um, Miles Parks has done a really tremendous job in Cambridge of, of leading this, this UK effort. And what we're now doing is we're, we're moving that, that research effort to other examples. Tarek Ahmed is leading a, a, a tremendous pharmacogenetics project from Exeter, which has got nearly 150 sites across the UK recruiting patients. Um, and the bit that I'm looking at doing is twofold. One is this GEM project, and the other is a study called PREDICT. And I'll just tell you briefly about both of these, because I think they're tremendously exciting projects. GEM originated in Toronto about five years ago, and it's a study where we're looking at the healthy first-degree relatives of patients with Crohn's disease. We're looking for young subjects, so these are healthy people aged between 6 and 34 years of age. They don't have Crohn's disease, but they have a first-degree first relative who does. So it might be a brother or a sister, a parent, or, or, or an offspring. And what we do at baseline is that we then look at their genetics. We take a stool sample to look at the microbiota. We'll look at a serum sample. We'll look at their peripheral blood mononuclear cells, a gut permeability test, and then a detailed survey of environmental factors in their diet. And then the subjects get followed up by a phone call every six months. And ultimately what we're looking to do is to see over time who develops Crohn's disease, and who doesn't. And then you can go back to those baseline variables before anyone's developed disease. And in this large cohort, you can compare the factors at baseline, be it in the gut microbiota or the environment that have predisposed people to developing disease. The, the GEM project internationally needs 5,000 subjects to recruit. And in the UK, we've committed to recruiting 1,000. And we've set up 25 centers throughout England, Scotland, and Wales to help us address this question, and we're starting to recruit the first patients just this month. So this is a tremendously exciting um, project 
that we are um, that we are just launching just now. The other study that I alluded to is the PREDICT study, and this is a UK-based study that I've set up um, from Edinburgh that we're going to launch in the same sites as the GEM study next year in 2015. And in PREDICT, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the similar sort of factors, but we're going to take a large cohort of patients who are in clinical remission. And we're then going to look at their gut microbiota, and in a very detailed way, we're going to look at their diet and their other environmental factors, and then we will follow them towards a point where they have a significant disease flare. Not all patients will, of course, so we can compare things like what happens in the gut microbiota um, at baseline, what people are eating at baseline, and see what kind of dietary factors, what kind of signatures in the gut microbiota predict not just flare, but perhaps even more in in instructively predict long-term remission so that we can then use that to feed into interventional studies to try and help those patients that have already developed disease. So what we're doing with this big program of research um, in the UK is we're trying to understand why people develop disease and then what happens to them once they develop. And there's a huge number of other projects that I haven't got time to tap into just now that are really very exciting um, that we've got developing. One last area that I'll mention is that the, the genetics continues to be exciting. Um, with, with our guys at the Sanger, with, with Jeff Barrett, Carl Anderson, we're now looking at sequencing uh, tens of thousands of patients with, with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So these are whole genome sequences that we're now generating on this large population. And that presents a huge bioinformatics challenge, but one that will allow us to really fine map the genetics. Um, and help us to feed into um, all sorts of other questions and, and provide lots of, lots of questions as well for the biologists, the immunologists, to tap into to, to really understand what's going on. So to summarize, Phil, um, we, we've been doing a large number of studies. It's producing a lot of questions and some answers. From the genetics, we then ask the biologists and the immunologists to try and make, make sense and understand what's going on. But by investing in the science, by looking very carefully in large numbers of patients, we can really start to understand the biology of the disease. And it's through doing that in an organized and systematic way, using big data, big analytical tools, in a, in a systematic, non-biased way, we can then affect real changes to patients. It takes time, but in the next five to 10 years, I think we will be much closer to understanding truly what's causing these diseases to develop and be much closer to affecting really important changes um, in it for patients that have these terrible diseases. And hopefully, if we can't get anywhere near a cure, perhaps, we can at least get to a point where we can enter patients into a phase of prolonged remission without the need for potentially toxic therapy. Well, uh, one thing's for certain, Dr. Lee, is it's very exciting times in IBD research. And uh, thank you very much once again for your fantastic contribution uh, and uh, support both with this podcast and with the Frontline Gastroenterology Twitter debate. We're really grateful and it's been superb. The, the slides from the Twitter debate will be uh, available next to the link for this podcast, um, which Dr. Lee's has very kindly uh, agreed to supply. Our next Twitter debate is with uh, Professor Sirian Gilmore. He's the ex-BSG uh, president, amongst many other accolades, and he's on Tuesday, the 11th of November in uh, 2014, 8 till 9 p.m. Uh, GMT time, um, using the FG debate hashtag.
and entitled Frontline Hepatology, Alcohol, Our Favourite Drug and Everybody's Problem. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. Oh, my pleasure, Phil. Thanks very much indeed for involving me.